0: That point saying, let me just do something that I want to do and taking a risk, and almost starting from scratch, because by this time I'd I'd been in the industry for kind of, you know, a good eight years at least. And I finally got to some kind of position where I was being recognized more, and I was kind of, you know, I, I had a decent salary and I had a decent job title and I was within a company that was major and you know all of these things that on paper are where you should be and what you should be doing so actually then to say I'm gonna leave that all behind and walk away from that and start something from scratch which has no guarantees that it will work out also with no safety net you know I think was hugely scary.
1: Before we get into today's episode, we have a word from our sponsor, Mindset Shift. Have you ever told yourself, I don't think I can do this? They will never go for it. I'm not a good enough leader. The things you tell yourself that hold you back. Imagine if you could remove all those boundaries just by holding them up and actually looking at them, figuring out where they come from and how to tackle them. At Mindset Shift, That's what we do. We help innovative and ambitious leaders that want to make extraordinary things happen for their teams, for their business, for their culture, and for themselves. We help unlock their growth. Through actionable coaching, workshops, leadership development programs, or speaking engagements, we create foundational people over profit environments, the kinds where productivity and innovation soar culture, inclusion, and equity sit at the heart of operations. Are you ready to step out the box and take your organization to the next level? Contact us today at www.mindsetshift.co.uk. Enjoy today's episode. On today's episode of Everyday Leadership, I have the pleasure of talking to the founder of Own It, which is a publishing house, literary and literacy, film, TV agent, storytelling lifestyle brand. I think that's the best way to put it. And one of the co-founders, Crystal Mahe Morgan, is in the hot seat today, but it's not that hot. I'm just joking. She's in the seat today. How are you doing, Crystal?
0: I'm good. I'm good. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I mean, I think leadership and just speaking on that and what that means is so important. So it's so great to kind of be on your podcast and yeah, talk with you. Happy to be here.
1: Pleasure is is all mine. And as with all my guests, I tend to go way back. And for you, when I was doing um, the research into you, I wanted to go back to the, the 16 year old Crystal. <laughs> when, you, when, you, when you came up with that, I was like, raw, at 16. That for me just was like, okay, I want to go a bit and understand a bit more about one, your love for hip hop and how that made a difference to you. But two, why you actually took that that next step to actually change the game a bit?
0: Oh gosh, it's it's so hard kind of thinking back to a different mentality. But I guess in a way that's always existed within me. So that 16 year old is still me. It's kind of maybe a bit more refined now. But yeah, back then... So I, I was always just interested in kind of expression in different ways, I suppose. So you mentioned hip hop. I I kind of found hip hop maybe when I was like 13, 14. And I was just always really kind of moved by people sharing um, stories and ideas and expressing themselves. And, you know, with hip hop, often it's things that you don't consume or hear about in other areas. So, you know, when you're consuming other forms of entertainment, there's often stories that are missing and that was something that I think always fascinated me even before I could articulate that and realize that so and then kind of getting into hip-hop you kind of realize obviously a lot of the stuff I was listening to was kind of US based so you know I was really into Wu-Tang and Tribe and Biggie and Nas and those experiences did speak to me on one level but also you know, and Lauren Hill obviously you have to mention her, but like on another level, it's very different to kind of our British experience. And so I then kind of realised maybe when I was about 15, 16, that we actually had something going on here and I got quite involved in the kind of British UK kind of hip hop scene. And yeah, that really kind of led to the face magazine, I guess, and that article that was really about wanting to represent who we were and where we were from and really celebrate as well the fact that we had our own thing going on here which to be honest like 20 years ago or however yeah about 20 years ago I'm now so at that time it wasn't really celebrated and it wasn't a scene like it is now and it wasn't something that kind of existed in such a big mainstream significant way it was very underground and it was very like you know there was kind of no fans of UK mm-hmm. hip-hop because if you was a fan of it you was in it somehow that's how small it was you know so but yeah the, the face magazine came about because actually when I was 14 I did work experience there and I then just kept the relationship with them and I think with the face magazine they always tried to be like the cutting edge of what culture was or what was happening. And I just felt like we needed to be in that and part of that. And if that was representing the cutting edge of kind of culture and lifestyle, then things like UK hip hop needed to be celebrated and recognised as part of that. So, yeah, it took a long time to get it done because no one could see any kind of audience or interest for it but eventually persistence pays you know I was quite persistent I was able to argue a case for the fact that we did have brilliant artists here funnily enough that's how I met my husband Jason Morgan who was known as Cuba was part of 12 Sun Productions which are really pioneering kind of UK a hip-hop group very much part of that camp which was a small camp just advocating for using you know British accents, British slang, our culture and identity, along with so many others, like MCC and kind of London Party and stuff. But yeah, it was really just about celebrating that and, and, you know, making sure that that's out there and kind of recognised.
1: Man, that's um, that's powerful. And I think that's what struck me about it, actually, is I can only imagine what it has been like trying to raise the profile of the UK hip-hop scene at that point in time when there was no streaming, there was no data around it, there was no tangible thing that you could necessarily point to. And you being that young and you're knocking in doors like, no, this is there, there's a scene for it. You kept on knocking and that perseverance paid even though other people can't see it.
0: I think what you say is so true. I think often people say like, oh my gosh, I can't believe he was doing that at such a young age. But actually, that is when we do do these things. Like that is when we do... <laughs> We're not cynical. We're not jaded by life. We've got all the confidence in the world in some ways because we're just so kind of, yeah, naive, delusional, hopeful, you know, (laughs) all of these things before, like, you realise that life, yeah, not quite like that or not smooth running. But, and I think that's partly why it's funny because people are always kind of more impressed about the things I was doing when I was kind of 16, 17, 18, But actually, it was much harder to leave my job kind of when I was early 30s and set up Own It because at that stage, you are more aware of life. And when you think about things like leadership, often part of that comes with the idea of responsibility. And suddenly you feel that you need to be responsible and you need to have a salary job and you need to find a way to to make sure your mortgage is paid every month and all of those things. And so actually I find that it's much easier to kind of do really impressive things when you're young because you've kind of got all of that exuberance and confidence.
1: So have you always been into I guess media publishing? Because if at 14 you were doing an internship at the face, was that something you were thinking from then on that you wanted to step into this industry then?
0: Yeah. I mean, I wanted to be a journalist. Well, I say I wanted to be, I was a journalist. I was writing for the Facebook magazine, I was writing for Guardian and Newspaper at 16, mainly doing comment pieces and then Tart, Echoes and Booze and, and those kinds of magazines. So, but I think, yeah, from a young age, kind of, kind of 14, I, I wanted to be a journalist. I think it really didn't come from wanting to do a certain job. It came from frustration. Like I feel like everything I've ever done has always come from frustration. So I think it's, not seeing certain things that I wanted to see, making me feel like, okay, I want to do this. So if it's kind of news and press and media, like even subconsciously not seeing things that reflected me or my interest or my stories or that of my community or of where I was from, like that was always a great source of frustration. So, you know, with The Guardian, I think one of the first, articles I wrote for the Guardian when I was 16 was about gang culture and I put gang culture in inverted commas because yeah there's a lot of connotations to that and sometimes saying new violence I think is actually more appropriate and accurate than gang culture because a lot of the young people that do get involved in things that it's not actually because they're joining gangs and they're trying to do organized crime it's much more you know youth culture happening because of all of the systemic kind of problems that we have in this country on many levels. But anyway, I'm digressing. No,
1: it's it's, it's relevant. (laughs) Keep on going.
0: I think that was the first article that maybe I wrote for The Guardian. And I wrote it because at the time there was something in the news and I just saw the way it was being reported and I saw the way it was being spoken about and it felt very biased and it felt very one-sided and it felt like the conversation was happening by and two people that were not involved in it. And it's not to say that I was involved in it, of course not, but I grew up in Tower Hamlets. That was a sort of frustration, like I felt an injustice and I felt like a lack of understanding and I felt that was being very harmful to the people involved and to society as a whole and again like I I probably couldn't express all of this in that way back then but it was just a feeling you know it was just like almost hurt it kind of almost showed inequalities and it showed the imbalance of the world and I think when you are kind of 15, 16 and, and you're starting to see these things and feel them really deeply it kind of you know it yeah, it can affect you. It can affect you and kind of make you realise that a bubble maybe that you've been in with your friends and your circle when you're younger, You, the, the more you learn, the more you start to kind of understand the world and its inequalities. So yeah, that was my first article. So it wasn't really that I was like, I want to be a journalist and I want to write for The Guardian. It was much more, these things were happening which were moving me and frustrating me and angering me. And it was like, well, what can I do? How can I have a voice? And I felt that journalism was a way to have a voice. It's funny, my, my husband always like tries to say to anyone that didn't know me then, and we meet now that, you know, it's not just a business mind, but you know, she's creative and stuff. And I always shy away from it a bit, because I, I was a poet, I was a performance poet. And maybe for like a year or two years so around like 16 to 18 and i do quite a lot of shows and stuff but i always shy away from it because i feel like there's so many better poets and wordsmiths and i've never quite felt like that's a hat that i can claim and feel comfortable in doing so um but yeah i think that's just a personal thing like i i think when i was doing it like People seem to engage in it. But again, I think the poetry just came about from just wanting to say things. It, it was going to, um, going to events. I mean, the poetry really came about because I used to promote hip hop and poetry events. The idea was like to go into spaces like cafes within East London or, you know, spaces that no one's really thinking about and to take like a really underground hip hop audience and a really highbrow poetry audience and put them in the same room and put hip-hop artists and poets on the same stage and almost like an experiment like what will happen because I've always been like my interests have always been really eclectic and varied you know I've always kind of loved reading and loved hip-hop and loved things and to me that just felt like the most natural thing that you might be interested in lots of different things but again sometimes the world Present stuff in really polarized ways so like if you're a reader can you be into like you know one's literary and one's like gangster like you know there's all of these polarizations and perceptions that I think are inaccurate and put on us and so I think that really came from that idea um, and the events were very successful and as a result of that I kind of found a British poetry scene and you know like I always like loved the idea of the New Yorker cafe in New York and the idea that there'd be performance poets and nars might just drop in any one day. And so I think it was really inspired by that idea. And because I started doing that and I wanted to promote it and get people to it, I found myself in the poetry scene and then I was just inspired by people and I just found that words would flow and, and things would come out and then I did a couple of open mics and then I started to get bookings and people would pay me, you know, at 16, when people are paying you £200 for 15 minutes to go and perform, you're just like, oh my gosh, I've made it. Like, none of this, like, influence of money and stuff. So yeah, it just, I kind of just fell into it. But I suppose I've never really claimed that for myself because I feel like it was just something that I did at that time as another form of expression rather than like a mysterious poet.
1: I did try to find some old content. I haven't found none yet. I'm, I'm intrigued. <laughs> Because I have a very, very good feeling of what you're like when you do your poetry.
0: Yeah, that's why you two probably shouldn't meet. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's funny, isn't it? It's funny even thinking about things like Leadership, because it's funny, I feel like leadership so tied up in identity. I think it's really interesting, like the perceptions people have of us and then the perceptions that we have of ourselves. And often the two things don't tally up. And I think, you know, maybe in that's one example where my perception of me is maybe a bit different to others. But for me, I feel like I just, I need to feel authentic in things to be able to claim them. And I've always felt when it comes to poetry, there's just so many brilliant, amazing poets that are out there. And I've just felt like, just genuinely, that yeah, it's not something a title that I feel like I can claim. But it's interesting because as an agent, I often work with writers who are like incredible writers, like just incredible thinkers and they feel uncomfortable calling themselves writers and they're like you know am I a writer can I really call myself an author I've only done this or done that and I think I think there's something to be said about humans and what we allow ourselves to identify with or claim yeah
1: I definitely agree with that a weighted crown that just keeps us stuck rather than other people looking but, oh my gosh that's a crown that's beautiful but to the individual that type it feels like oh that's a lot. For me to handle for me to carry so I definitely agree with that
0: yeah like absolutely you've kind of hit the nail on the head and in a nutshell that was it like I couldn't be my authentic self and you know it wasn't just about one company I spent the majority I think I was maybe six years at Penguin Random House so that's the thing when I speak about things that I speak most about but just my time in the industry generally you know the publishing industry so when i graduated i decided that i wanted to work in publishing because it felt like when i looked back on everything that i'd done the common thing that tied all of them things together was like expression and ideas and storytelling and i've always loved books and so that just felt like a very natural place for me to be but it didn't feel like a natural place for others for me to be and i quickly became made aware of that and i think at first you're kind of like I can fit in not by changing me but when people understand who I am or see what I can do or see what I can bring that will be enough and then as you know time goes by you realize that actually it's not enough and for you to fit in and progress and do well you you need to change yourself you need to and I could feel myself starting to do it I could feel the frustration of just not being able to be my authentic self. And that became very soul-destroying. There was kind of no, no motivation or, or kind of richness in that. And I think, you know, if you go and you're working, like, in retail, which I've done a lot of, you know what it is. Like, you're going, it's a job, you're getting paid, and that's that. So you're not expecting to get kind of mad creative performance from that. You know what it is. I think when you're working in industries like the creative arts, you're in it because you do expect to get that kind of cultural enrichment. And for me, part of getting cultural enrichment is being able to be my authentic self. And and when I saw that not only was that not happening, but it probably never would happen, it was kind of I I was compelled to leave. It wasn't even like I made the like I can't imagine staying within an environment where I just feel like I'm not able to be myself because I think I have stuff to offer I think everyone in this world has stuff to offer you know and I think when you're in industries which make you feel that it's only certain people that have valuable stuff to offer that's just something that doesn't sit right with me and didn't feel right and wasn't making me happy so yeah I decided to leave (laughs)
1: You um nervous, scared? What were you feeling like? Because stepping out of that world and that industry to create, own it, I can imagine would not have been an easy decision, despite everything that you, know, you just described, how you were feeling. It
0: really wasn't an easy decision at all. It meant a lot of sacrifices. Like I say, I, I think it's easier to try things out and take risks when you're younger, because you've kind of got time to make the mistakes. When you're kind of like in your thirties as a woman, and you kind of have responsibilities like mortgages and all of those things, actually, at that point, saying "Let me just do something that I want to do and take a risk" and almost starting from scratch, because by this time I'd I'd been in the industry for kind of you know a good eight years at least, and. All of that energy and work, to, I, I finally got to some kind of position where I was being recognized more and I was kind of, you know, I, I had a decent salary and I had a decent job title and I was within a company that was major and, you know, all of these things that are on paper are where you should be and what you should be doing. So actually then to say, I'm going to leave that all behind and walk away from that and start something from scratch, which has no guarantees that it will work out. Also, with no safety net, you know, I think was hugely scary. I'm really lucky, like, um, my husband was very supportive. I-, I always joke that the original call was, in-, in one sense, it was very out the blue in that just one Monday I'd gone to work, I was in a meeting, and there was just something... It's just like, although it has been building up for a while, it's just the straw that broke the camel's back. It's just like that meeting, I was just like, this, I cannot do this. Like, this is not me. This is not going to be my life. I'm not happy. This, no, I can't do this. So I literally at lunch went and phoned him and said, coming home tonight, writing my resignation letter, resigning tomorrow. And so in one sense, it was just so out of the blue, hence all the experiences. But in another sense, I think, you know, we both probably knew that that was coming in the subconscious. And I think deep down, it makes complete sense where I've ended up. It's just full circle from where I've started. And he shared, you know, we founded Own It Together, we run Own It Together. He shared so many of my frustrations. He comes from a music background, obviously, from his days in 12 Stone Productions and kind of the UK hip hop scene. So... He kind of understood where I was coming from and also felt like there needed to be a change. And, and yeah, so it was very natural for both of us, even though on paper it felt very scary and a
1: A conversation with my wife and I was like, mm. <laughs> it wasn't, but like you said, it's so worth it because you know, and I really need to step into the fullness and own who I am. And that means creating my own thing. And I guess you can see that, coming through from even from your younger days of being 14 to 16 to everything you've done so far to where you're right now. So it's definitely not a, a surprise, but if we lead into a bit more about own it, like what is own it in your own words and why I've been so intentional about the way you've created that in the organization.
0: So we call ourselves a storytelling lifestyle brand. Essentially there's three main parts of it, two predominantly. So there's own it publishing Where we're independent, kind of publishing house, and we publish books. There's only a literary film and TV agency, and that's essentially a talent agency where we work across books, film, TV. And they both operate kind of distinctly because the function of a publisher and an agent are quite different, but with the same ethos. And I guess this is where the storytelling lifestyle. Brand idea comes into it that really for us we just want to work with stories and how we do that doesn't really matter. So on the publishing side, we're working with writers to publish their books, but on the agency side, we're working with writers to help develop their stuff to sell to other publishers or to sell to production companies. And I guess it, even the fact that like we don't mind whether we're working across we've done projects before which have been kind of digital animated music projects where, so one project, the group therapy program, we worked with, there was one songwriter, so Suba, Jason, my husband, he, he wrote four songs. We worked with four different singers, producers, four different illustrators and animators, and we put together a whole project which included all of those elements. And that project was really about How do we work with different artists in different forms to tell a story, one story, but using all of these different mediums within one project? So for us, the storytelling kind of lifestyle idea really comes from that thing of stories are just, we feel like, well, they are in our DNA, like they're just part of humanity. You know, we've survived because of storytelling, we've kind of grown, we've kind of we exist and we're not extinct because of that. It's such like just an innate part of who we are. So hence our tagline, because stories are life. It just, if it's about stories first, all the other things don't really matter. So what industry, what format, you know, for us, we just want to engage with a bigger audience as possible. And I think sometimes within publishing, it can be very elitist and it can be very snobby and often you're sitting at positions meetings and maybe they're a bit more careful with the way they phrase it now, like post-DLM and all of that stuff. But, you know, it's very much like, okay, we're not going to take this book because this audience don't read. We're not going to take this book because this audience don't buy books. And there's all of these kind of elitist kind of ideas around who certain parts of art are for and who they're not I just really want to democratise that because actually all art is for all people and unfortunately it doesn't feel like the infrastructure within the arts industry really exists to kind of bring that to fruition in the way that we're trying to Yeah
1: that really resonated when you were talking about all arts for all people and actually that statement absolutely ridiculous but I guess it's like you say there's that elitism. A lot of people they they put in the ethnic backgrounds, actually from a culture perspective, a lot of them are highly educated because that's the culture. It's go to school, get educated, get a university degree.
0: Exactly. It's so true. And I think even if you go further back, as in way, way back, I think often in the West there's this idea that things started from the written word and the West created the written word. And you know, that's why we're all civilized and have ideas and and can communicate but if you go further back like the oral tradition is it, whether it's like africa or asia or you know just the global south generally like there's such a rich history of oral tradition and ideas and stories and identities being passed down from generation to generation through these oral traditions and for us that's really no that is just a different format you know, like when I was so with books, obviously there's always been physical books. There was a moment when ebooks were not they was a new thing and the idea of digital was really kind of like just something that no one really understood or knew about. And there's this idea of all well, our physical books gonna disappear and what, what does that all mean for the market and stuff, so thought. Mainly really, when it comes to books, they're just different formats. You get a hardback, you get a paperback, you get an audio book, you get an ebook, but the content is all the same. And for us, that's also true of you might have had oral tradition as one format almost, and then you have the written word as another format, but at the heart of it, it's just about sharing ideas and communicating and stories. And so I think with Own it. we really kind of pull from that idea that yeah. Whatever format or medium or industry, or however a particular artist wants to express, or however a particular audience wants to engage, they're all on the same path. There's no one that's kind of more highbrow or more valued than any other.
1: Statement is a is a really, really powerful one actually that we all tend to think And I say we all, it's a generalistic view in the West that everything originated in the West. But if you go way back, that's that's not the case. I love that even when you look at the pyramids that were built in Egypt, you go even further back towards that. There's so much richness and education and culture and the storytelling has always been key. That's always been the way of passing information from one generation to the next through the power of, of storytelling. Mm-hmm.
0: Definitely, like I'm. So my parents are Indian. Like I'm British Indian. And when I think about the the storytelling culture, kind of with with India, kind of from way, way, way back. You know, when you go back to the Indus Valley civilization, and when you go back, and even when I think about the way story was preserved, often it was through rhythm. So often you keep it because you there's there's a pattern, there's a rhythm that gets passed on, and that's how you keep. And that's why, you know, there's such a long lineage of stuff that's kind of still exists today and probably is exactly the same as way back when, and not because it was written down and not because it was published in a book, but because there was these own mechanisms to share this through a a, a different format, which isn't recognized, you know, oral traditions never thought of in the same way as the written word, which is ridiculous because without the oral traditions, there would be no written word. So we have to remember kind of, not only is everything equally valid, but a lot of the things that we place higher value on now come from things that we look down upon, you know, originally, which I always find quite interesting.
1: So how do you decide who to work with and who, I mean, a good example would be if fair dinner girl, Skepta's mum, that's someone we want to work with. That's someone's story you want to bring out to the world.
0: Mm, you know what? We're always asked this question and it's a really hard one to answer because there's almost not a criteria or it's almost the opposite of how traditional publishing works where there are criteria. you know, and understandably so because this is the way businesses need to operate. So you need to think about commercial success of something and then when you have assumptions like we talk about on who reads or who buys books or what will be commercially successful that often creates criteria of who you should or shouldn't work with. Mm -hmm. I think for us our own it's really when we see it, we know it. And I know that sounds like really kind of vague and but it it is honestly that's the way it is. Like with Iffy it Obviously she's kind of got very famous children and all of those things, but it was never about that. Like we didn't publish Skepta's mum's book. We published If He had the Mood's book in her own right. And we published it because we read the material and we was blown away by it. We were blown away by her story. We was blown away by just the power within her to live the life she'd lived but still give so much to the world in such a generous way and and we was blown away by her ability to write as someone who hadn't gone through that kind of formal training and tradition of creative writing but was able to just express her story in such an engaging kind of inspirational way so I think with everyone we've published it's always been a no-brainer it's always it's never been like, should we publish this person? It's always been like, how can we not? And I think when you saw that feeling very deeply, the, the kind of decision gets made for your for yourself. You're not kind of as active in it as it might seem. It's just a given.
1: I see that part of that change you also bring into the industry is even having like a 50-50 split with your artists and the people that you publish again. You were very intentional about that way that typical publishing tends to work.
0: I think that's so important. I think creators often get a raw deal, quite literally. <laughs> and I think when I was at Penguin Random House, I was in the contracts department for maybe three, three years, like just over three years. And that was really invaluable because it kind of allowed me to learn the business. The real terms and conditions, the small print, like what contracts actually mean and what are good and bad kind of deals and offers beyond just the initial money or or the things that, you know, it's, and, and I think it, it, especially in terms of IP and ownership, I think it kind of really opened my eyes. Um, and then after I was in contracts, I was in sales. So again, like real business end of things, real, kind of audience commercial value sales numbers and that was kind of I think that's often the bit that's missing from creatives that knowledge you know or that understanding so that was my experience and then with Jason when he was in Tulsa productions. they had meetings with like Polydor, Sony you know there was a lot of majors that were interested in kind of speaking to them and potentially signing them but They were never interested. They was always about being independent so that they could keep creative control and they had ownership over their IP. And they essentially, their voices and their messages and their expressions weren't being watered down, but were being authentic and going to people in a way that meant something that they, it, they could relate to. So I think with both of us kind of having those experiences and then coming to think about doing our own thing, it was really important to think through the business side of things. And it was really important to want to create a business model that was not exploitative, but not only that, to show that that could be commercial, like, you know, we started with literally nothing. And when I say that, I mean, literally nothing. So when we started, I was working sales, So I would left like my great job and this, the salad and all of that, just to go and temp and and work telesales just to make ends meet and put into the business. And my husband worked security, you know, for the same reason. And we really did start with nothing, but we're six years in now. It's been year on year growth. We're kind of commercially successful and profitable. And I think. It's really important to put that message out into the world that you don't have to be exploitative to be commercially successful. In fact, you can give away 50% of your profits to the authors who have created the work and who's blood, sweat and tears have gone into it and you can still build as a company in a very commercially successful way. And I think that messaging is very important because we live in a world which is just highly expensive of everyone, but especially creative.
1: I've worked with some creators in the past and there's an element of, I guess, business and financial acumen that is not necessarily available to them. They're brilliant at what they do, but then, you now start reading the contracts that they sign into and they get taken advantage of very easily. And I remember seeing one of my friends in particular ask, like, Why did you just sign this? Like, I didn't know, I thought it was all right. Well, we want to intentionally change this, but also ensure that the creatives are being rewarded from a financial perspective. It's really good.
0: I think that was also part of why I felt compelled that I needed to start something independently and not remain within the industry, because I realized there's a vacuum of knowledge that I now had. You know, I now had this that I could plug back in to my own communities, my own artistic networks, my own kind of vision for what should be. And it felt to stay and keep that knowledge and not, because, you know, we always say knowledge is power and that's true on so many levels. It's also true when it comes to the business side of, the arts, you know, and it felt like once I'd attained that at such a high level, it was almost criminal not to then share that and democratize that with the people that are often the most talented, but then don't have access to that. And I think it's funny, like you're saying with your friend and seeing the contract and being like, why did you sign that? I think what often happens with artists is is when they become a bit more successful that they set up something independent. So they go through that process of You know, being with a major, whether it's a record label or a publishing house or whatever it is. And then, you know, they then get to a point where they're like, actually, 90% of my money is going to everyone else, but I am doing all the work. So the best thing I can do is have ownership and and start my own thing. And I guess with Own It, what we wanted to do was at least have an option out there for people who could benefit from that from the very beginning of their career. Like most of the people we published have been debut novelists, you know, they're people right at the beginning of their career. And I think it's important to have an alternative space out there, which allows you to kind of just allows you to own your own IP and and know you're getting 50% and just not be trapped by the trappings of the industries.
1: The be tra- by the trappings. I like that. <laughs> What's it been like working with your husband?
0: Uh, <laughs> you'll get a different answer depending on which day you ask me. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually, so I think it is intense and it's hard. And I think anyone who is, a couple and thinking about going into business together like think long and hard about it because it's it's very real often but I I think for us like there's just a genuine kind of respect for our creativity and our you know so outside it's actually quite easy for me to separate him from being my husband when we're in a working space because that's how I met him I met him when he was artist and I was writing for the Face magazine and I interviewed his group for the feature and so he was actually in that six six page spread in the Face magazine so I think we've always connected first and foremost on a creative level and just had kind of a genuine respect for each other's art and craft and so in that sense it's actually it's quite easy and I feel like in terms of what he brings to own it creatively and in terms of vision and like I wouldn't actually want to work with anyone else not because he's my husband but because of who he is as an artist and a creative and a thinker himself so so yeah it's intense and I'm not gonna lie like there's definitely days where it's like why did we do this (laughs) but ultimately I'd never have it any other way you know I, I think you just need to go into things like business and creativity with people who you just have that people that inspire you you know like I I like to be inspired creatively and I think that's probably why I left mainstream publishing I just wasn't being creatively inspired anymore and he's definitely someone who's always creatively inspired me so in that sense it's really easy and I feel really lucky
1: Speaking of leadership, what is your definition of leadership?
0: Oh, that's such a good question. My definition of leadership. Oh my gosh, you see how I've been talking non-stop and then you've asked me that question. (laughs) (laughs) Um, My definition of leadership. I think it's changed. I think my definition of leadership has changed over time. But I think my definition of leadership now is to be the best person I can be. Because I truly believe in leading by example, and I believe that leadership has to start with you first. So, I, I feel like I'm at my strongest leadership, not when I am telling others what to do, but when I'm questioning myself. And I think, yeah, I think my definition of leadership is to be the best person that you can be, because in doing that, you, you put out an example others to do that themselves and I think leadership is not about what you say it's about action I think like the truest most authentic form of leadership is about action and I think when you think about action it has to start with you first and your actions and why you do them and how you can improve them. What is your definition?
1: It's about you leading yourself first but leading with, leading by example, Leading with your action, not your words, and then that floats into other people. So my, like I said, my family are like a bedrock of a lot of what I do. And I always ask myself that I want to be in a position where my kids can never call me out on anything that we talk about. They can always see that I'm leading by example. I'm stepping outside of my comfort zone. I'm doing different things. And therefore, I can talk to him about it. Same with my wife, but primarily starts with how I lead myself, I'm true to myself and true to my values
0: and then I flows into other people. Yeah, I agree. I also think like one of the truest forms of leadership is vulnerability. I think often when we think about leadership, we think about being strong and being, you know, like firm and being all of these kind of things that we associate with strength. But I think actually some of the kind of strongest strength comes through vulnerability and I think being a true leader is about being able to make yourself vulnerable and showing that that's okay that It's so true
1: as a wrap up I need to ask these two questions your favourite book
0: oh my gosh I hate this question
1: <laughs> Come on! I was like, you should this for you. I was like, this must be something simple. Favorite book?
0: I find it really hard. This is like asking me what my favorite album is, and I hope that wasn't going to be this. <laughs>
1: That's I'm asking that one as well. You know, favorite album and favorite artist. Three questions.
0: <laughs> uh, in terms of book, and I hate saying this because it sounds really pretentious, but I, I think that Outsider by Albert Camus, which is Very short, but just very impactful. It's about, see, it sounds so, it sounds so expensive, but it's about existentialism. And I think, like, I'm really interested in philosophy. I'm really interested in the idea of who we are and why we do the things we do and what the relevance of those are, if there is any. So that is something that kind of I read when I was quite young and really made me think about all of those things. But I don't really have a favourite book. I read different things at different times. Like every Christmas I'll read Andrea Levo's book. There used to really be, uh, W.H. Smith in Stratford Shopping Centre. Not Westfield, but Old School Stratford Shopping, shopping Centre, which always used to stink of fish. And like my mum used to go there and there was a W.H. Smith and I love going there and it's like on this day, she let me buy two books and it's the most exciting thing. And so I read that book and yeah, as much I think I was about 11. So now, like, that's one of my favourite books.
1: So, favourite group?
0: This one's harder than books, I all because it's so, it depends on the mood. I think, no, mm. I think in terms of, so not group, but in terms of, like, one artist that really impacted me, kind of. I, I think because he's a lyricist, I think, because to me, it was just, like, poetry on a book or a, but like, it just happened to be. In the form of music, so that's definitely someone. But also, so
1: are we? Are we talking about well, Illmatic? It was written. Which of the albums you are you know talking
0: about? So I'm going to be honest with you. The first time, and like I feel like to, to a lot of people this would be blasphemous, but remember I'm 37. So the first album that I actually came to of his was God's Son. and there was something in that. Yeah. Okay. And then I went back, and I was like, and so Illmatic was the album that really spoke to me but I can't that's not like the first album I picked mm. I picked Nas in his latest stuff and then there was just something that connected and then I went back to kind of you know the original was oh, yeah. like oh my gosh wow like this really speaks to me but then also the roots I saw the roots when I was 14 it just felt so different it actually felt so different to a lot of the other hip-hop I would also listening to and I really liked that like I'm um, and really into things that are alternative or reappropriate in some ways. And I think, you know, the Roots coming with, and even the fact that they were kind of a bit more nerdy, that's just something that I thought was just madly creative and inspiring. So yeah, the Roots, in terms of Roots, like I think then, and I think in terms of albums that are my go-to always, probably Things Fall Apart that's the one I probably listen to the most. But again, I think that might just be nostalgia. That time of my life and the first time that I really, you know, was going out and moved by music in that way, I think that's part of the reason. What about you? Favourite book, favourite uh, album?
1: It's favourite album. Someone asked me this recently. And I, I was like, I found that really hard to have a favourite album, even a favourite artist, because I think it's very much to what you said. It depends on the time of your life. So I started going through like old school MJ Stephen Wonder, I remember those kind of artists, obviously was before I was born, but growing up and listening to them, it was those artists being played. And then you now move into the Nas Jay Z era where I was like, okay, this is this is like getting into into hip hop. But actually before then, it would probably been um NWA those kind of days, those kind of eras. And then I moved into like my R&B phase <laughs> where I went old school boys to men, like Jagged Edge and Mary J. Blige and all, and all of that. And every single artist or a group I just mentioned have like a different meaning to me in different times of my life in different places where if I really want to, because I'm, I'm a lyricist, I love lyrics. And then those artists have always been around the lyrics really, really right. And even in Tupac as well. In fact, probably Tupac stood out to me the most was he was a lyricist for me. And I could just sit back after a long, stressful day, put some Tupac on and just listen to this lyric and my thinking. And it just helped me go, helped me go deep. So, and like Rakim, Rakim's another one. I loved, I loved Rakim because it was, it was powerful. So, in terms of books, number one for me is always going to be the Bible. Like, my faith is important to me. So it's got me through some. Good times, bad times, keeps me going now. Bible's one.
0: Bible's um, own so number one bestseller in the world, always. <laughs> you know,
1: so it really has to be that. And then I guess I go to like Atomic Habits, actually. So Atomic Habits by, by James Clear is a really, really good book. So that'll probably be my top two.
0: You, you had them quite good. You didn't take as long as I did.
1: For real, I just want to say... The work that you and your and your husband are doing with, with Owen is absolutely brilliant. When you talked about you wanted to, you had a desire to see what's not represented, represented, it's exactly what you guys are doing. And I know it's never easy creating your own thing and stepping out, but it's making a difference, it's making an impact, people are noticing, and you're starting to see that change happening in other different areas of form. And that's why I was like, this photo was so important just to talk to you and to highlight The great work that you guys are doing and just like just keep on going, man.
0: Thank you. Thank you so much. And likewise like us doing what we do like people like yourselves reaching out and wanting to amplify that and wanting to kind of share that that's how we build and that's why we still exist and are able to sustain and are able to do what we do so it very is kind of like a community community movement and and so like like, thank you for doing what you do thank you to kind of have and yeah it's important that we do it together you know
1: indeed together we're going to make it This has been Everyday Leadership, and I'll see you next week.